Some people, sometimes people don't want to hear your antics, Burnin' Black. Fair enough. They want to get serious. They want to talk about life and we stress. We talk about life and stress. Oh, that's true. A lot of it. So I don't know what the I don't know what the problem is then. Every recording. All right. I am. I'll never make that mistake again. Not in your presence. I don't want to see that judge judgmental face. <laughs> I just like uh, such a strong episode. Can't cry over spilt podcasts. No. No. Uh, Mike. So what do we got here? We got some Concord grapes. Double banana action. Brendan Black. I had that, Triumphant return. I had that weird fucking coffee beverage again. That Starbucks in a can. Oh. I don't know well, why I always get that when I come here, but it's just, it seems like the most delicious thing in that store. We got to drink coffee if we're going on a podcast. Yep. Manna. There's a... Yeah, there's... Like a compilation of Nate Dog stuff that was released, like an unreleased album or whatever. Mm -hmm. And most of it's just complete crap. But the opening <laughs> song is amazing. Which is, we'll probably have to just make it the theme song for this week. He's alive, isn't he? No, he's dead. Nate Dog oh. died a few, few years ago. Of some uh, rapid, convulsive seizures or something like that? Yeah, he, he had strokes. He had a few strokes and he was like on a breathing apparatus. He couldn't breathe on his own. So yeah, he was, uh, he was pretty sick near the end. Was he uh, a drug addict or something? Uh, I, don't, I, I couldn't tell you for sure. Hmm. But I think that he might have been into some shit in the 90s maybe. <laughs> As we all were. <laughs> I need me a bitch with some big old thighs. So they dug up a comeback album the same way that Tupac had some CDs up oh. in his garage or <laughs> yeah, it's always it's always once the artist is not around to say no to like releasing songs or releasing a compilation, then it then it's a fucking free for all of like let's dig up whatever shitty seaside songs Seasides, yeah. that this artist recorded and put out album after album after album and just like cash in on a dead person. Right, and you get people coming out of the woodwork where they were like. Tupac left me a birthday rendition on my answering machine in 1994. Are you interested in it? We sure are, Mrs. Mrs. Pac. That's why. That's why it's good uh, that like Frank Zappa has his son sort of, like now kind of taking care of his vault of songs. I'm sure there's a lot of stuff in there he just like never wanted to release and. God knows they try. They'll try and put all that stuff out. That new Michael Jackson album that came out, Escape. <laughs> it sounded completely terrible. It was awful. Um, I wonder, you know, he had a whole list of um, certified impersonators. Did you hear about that backstory from the Simpsons episode that Michael Jackson was on? No. He, um, he got asked, invited, I think he invited himself to cameo on the Simpsons. Yeah, and he was famous for his bag of tricks. Like Michael Jackson, you you knew he was coming for a, at a certain date, but you never knew what the circumstances were going to be. He always had like some sort of weird entourage or um, eccentric like uh, way of scheduling himself. So in the case of The Simpsons, he agreed to be on the episode, and there's sections of the cameo that you know the metal patient guy that are him. Mm -hmm. And then other sections where he insisted on a very um, lifelike impersonator to oh. do some of the lines. 
and he blended the two together and he's uncredited on the show it's it's credited as the voice actor that pretended to be him and people can't really wrap their head around why he would set up this conspiracy you know because like it would be one thing to just send your professional impersonator you're like i don't have time to do this so i want to help you guys out you can say it's michael jackson but it's not really me yeah that would make that would be one thing and it'd be another thing to like go on the show and do all of the work and then put it in underneath a pen name yeah but to do both and then keep it a secret for like a decade that's kind of weird and it's also just like i think maybe i see where he was coming from in that the episode is a bite about a Michael Jackson impersonator. Oh. And that the idea might have been that he was doing that on purpose, sort of as like a nod to the fact that it was about like how people impersonate Michael Jackson. People like he's got such oh, a distinctive voice. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was just sort of giving like a meta nod to it. I love it when people explain these things to me because I'm always <laughs> looking at subtext so often that I kind of miss the obvious yeah. side of it. Where it's like, that does fit perfectly. Oh, back when The Simpsons was still good. So anyways, every recording artist has a tub of stuff that they're embarrassed about that their relatives are going to pick through and try to make money oh, on. Oh, for sure. <laughs> oh, there And there was this, like, I think I remember when Tupac's posthumous albums were coming out. It was, like, stuff he rapped over a telephone while he was in prison, like, one day that was, like, unrecorded, for, like, ideas for songs. He was rapping to his record producer while serving a sentence. And then, like, oh, yeah, just throw a beat on that, cut it up, get some guest stars on it, and we'll put it out as a new Tupac song. This was uh, sleptwalked. This was slept-wrapped by uh, Tupac while he was in jail. Based, based on a series of dream utterings <laughs> of, like, Tupac being asleep. I'm about to hug and it's what a hell? Ah! <laughs> it was more of a DMX. Yeah. <laughs> ah, get my money. I don't think it's money. <laughs> There's a great, great video going around of a guy who can do some insanely accurate impersonations of like DMX, Barack Obama, Chris Tucker, Eddie Murphy, like all of these like really famous black comedians and the president. And he's spot on. The he black is. rich little. Yeah, he basically, he basically is. It's just him doing it at a party and everyone... No one does impersonations bananas. anymore. I know. It's so funny. Like, well, some people do. Yeah. Some people do them as characters, like, you know, and especially in the podcast realm, like James Adomian doing Jesse Ventura. Yeah. Like Paul Tompkins. Doing, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Doing Maybe w- it's Werner Herzog and stuff like that. It's like... It, a it resurgence coming. Yeah, it still exists. It's just, like, different. It's not... No one goes up in a stand-up comedy mm-hmm. setting and just does impressions anymore. where they just repeat famous lines that yeah. the famous person says. Hey, so you, you know remember like, this guy? Oh, 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 shook up. Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank look, <laughs> I beat the fool. <laughs> Thanks. I'll be here all week. Ah, yeah. Tip your waitresses. <laughs> oh god. But that. What did you say? What was the guy on Comedy Bang Bang's name? James Adomian. James Adomian. Yeah. He's I one. think that that's the thing that surprised me about that stuff was how deep the material went yeah like he knows the character so well that he's able to spin off what the person is known for and imagine like this future scenario or this exaggerated scenario where that person becomes a cartoon character yeah he's he's more or less like written a new version of jesse ventura that like lives and breathes like there's the real jesse ventura and then there's his portrayal of him have they gotten the two of them together yet no i i get the feeling that jesse ventura probably doesn't appreciate the the level of uh 
Because for him, all of the Federal Reserve paranoia is real. It's real, right? And He and doesn't want to hear anybody making <laughs> fun of his voice. He really did go knee-deep in the soup. I was the governor. <laughs> Governator. Governator of Minnesota. Um, the only difference between me and Schwarzenegger is I was really a soldier, <laughs> and he just played one in the movies. But so did I. <laughs> Um, it, it's, I mean, thinking about imper- impersonations too, it, de- it never really disappeared. Like, that's the bread and butter of Saturday Night Live. It has been for 20 years. Easily, it's just like all of their biggest, th- biggest skits are usually like, you know, impersonating popular person A from the news. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty and much every sketch It happens in, show. in even at a base level in like friend groups. One yeah. of the best ways to bond with your friends is to impersonate each other. And I think that on a psychological level, it might be like, it's a little it's a little bit of evidence that you're kind of perceiving reality the same as the other person, right? Right. Like when you are able to pick up on a subtle cue that somebody else is exhibiting and you're able to like find another person that's noticed that too, yeah. it brings you closer together and you go like, yeah, we're seeing the world the same way. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I mean, we were always down with that at Manning when we would just be kind of impersonating all the clavicated roommates that we had. <laughs> <laughs> the rogues gallery. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of them. A lot of really, like, alumni, loud personalities with, like... I swear to God, like, one of the, the reasons why I think that um, this podcast can kind of stand on its own legs, even though there's no celebrities or anything like that <laughs> on it, mm-hmm. is, like, everybody in this fucking city is a character. The only thing that separates, like, celebrity people from just regular people is that a lot of times celebrities are put in a position where they're able to be exhibited and, like, examined with a a closer lens. Right. And average people that you uh, you walk past on the street, you never think twice. You just go, like, oh, that's some asshole. You don't think about, like, what their family life might be or how they see the world or they're not really given an opportunity to talk. Yeah, but sometimes I feel like you're a bit overly optimistic about the the interesting nature of like everyone because mm. we've talked about this before about how everyone's interesting that's something that you've said to me before where everyone in the world is interesting um but i i kind of beg to differ like <laughs> i there's a, a lot of people i've met where you could give them all the time in the world to talk and i don't think there'd be anything coming out this is a good challenge. This is a good challenge. I need you to bring on who you consider to be a pod. <laughs> the uh, you need to bring on this show somebody you think is like totally uninteresting. Oh, but that's and we'll get mean. to the bottom of it. That's mean. But then I have to out them as being completely uninteresting, and that's I don't know. We don't have to label it. <laughs> just introduce me and go like, just tap the side of your nose and say, "This is the one." <laughs> you try to get material out of this person. Just you try and bastard. find the interesting. And, yeah, I've, I feel like, you know, there's a lot of people... You're right. There's a lot of characters out there. There's a lot of funny, interesting people. But there are definitely some people out there who just are dull. Like, really, truly dull. Or or it's it's next to impossible to, to dig deep enough to figure out what it is. That well, that's what I'm happen. saying is that it's it's more like fear response and how guarded that person is. Like, generally, people who are really, really honest end up yeah. being overtly interesting. True. The people who aren't are usually, they put up guards and stuff. But, um, yeah, I don't know. 
<laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm just fucking digging these Concord grapes. It's been a while. Give me. It's been a while since I've been here. It's the one time of year when these purple Concord grapes are available in purple Concord grape country, which is southern Ontario. Yeah. And goddamn, do I look forward to it. Fucking yellow jackets crawling all over them in the, the yeah. fruit market, but. You just dig right in there, sweep uh, them off. This, they won't be a problem. There are a lot of troubling moments with wasps and bees this summer for me. I got stung a couple times, mm-hmm. which is, you know, I, I never get stung. I really haven't, uh, can't remember the last time before this summer that I'd been stung by a bee, and they just wouldn't leave me the fuck alone at all. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like there was an inordinate number of them this summer, too. I saw a creepy um, nest of them inside... Uh, a fence like it was a metal fence around the perimeter of high park and they had found a rusted hole inside the metalwork and they had constructed an elaborate wasp's nest going down the length of the fence line yeah and me and jrg were watching the wasps crawl in and over top of one another and stuff god damn such intricate tunnels and passageways they're able to spin out of that 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 kind of like the super colony insect especially like bees and ants i always you know when you start thinking about the complexity of like the hive mind and how there's there's no like latency between birth and adulthood right like they're right to work as soon as they come out of the they they crawl out of the pod and then they start to fix what they just crawled out of like they there's not a second where they exist as like a developed creature where they're not working. Mm-hmm. They're, they don't know exactly what they're supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, it takes us like 20 years. <laughs> to kind of get our shit to together. To kind of get our shit together. And a lot of people don't figure it out. They spend most of their life trying to figure it mm-hmm. out. And then their actual period of, uh, you know, like marketability and of, you know, at the height of their physical prowess and of their mental prowess and the, the relevancy, they have a really, really short time to get a lot of work done before then they just become either irrelevant or um, dependent, dependent, and, or just like you know start to lose their touch mm-hmm. or whatever it is that makes them like you know. So fire. when are more humans gonna be born that'll come over and feed me? <laughs> But I think it, it part of it's like that humans are born so prematurely, though, right? Like, um, because of the rapid expanse of our frontal cortex, mm-hmm. we're born like six months premature or something like that. Um, so, so you compare us to other mammals and like when a, a horse is born, mm-hmm. it's a horse. It's just a little horse. It, it's able to run alongside the mother and yeah. do all the things that a horse does, right? Whereas um, humans were kind of um, premature crippled thing. It's almost like when um, you ever seen a, a baby kangaroo. Yeah. Like how they're this, they're born like a premature little worm thing and they yeah. crawl out from the vag- vagina and then hop, hop into the, the um, pouch. Yeah. Oh, it's sick. Just, yeah, it's very strange, but yeah, no humans are completely useless <laughs> except as like child actors until they're 18. <laughs> Uh, and yeah, the, the level of dependency compared to other animals is pretty intense. You know, like you leave a human baby alone for even a day and it, it'll die. 
Yeah, you gotta <laughs> hug it and stuff. You gotta hug it and you, yeah, I don't know. Weird things, those babies. Are those are those creepy urban legends about the Nazis not touching the babies or something and having them die? Did you ever hear that that creepy story? No. There was. I don't know. I don't know if I want to say like Nazi just because it's it's uh, the world's famous, most famous evil army. Yeah. But there was some sort of experiment where. They had an orphanage and the newborn babies as an experiment. They didn't touch them. Yeah. And they died. Yeah. If you, they need like contact, they need to be held and stuff. They need emotional connection or they just fade away. That's uh, like we all do, man. Yeah, that's true. I think that's just a human human necessity in general. Because we need to be touched by somebody. And even among adults, right? You run into some creepy bastards every once in a while where they're like, I don't like to be touched. I don't like hugs. They don't, I don't like physical contact. You go, There's something wrong with you. You need yeah. to, you need to um, have a drug trip or something and go to a therapist and work that out. Cause yeah. I mean, I feel like I, I in periods of my life, like earlier in my life, and even sometimes still that, like... I have, I have a strange thing with personal space. And it's not even my own yeah. that I that I'm out to protect. Is that I'm very very aware of other people's personal bubble, mm-hmm. and because I'm never quite sure how comfortable people are, I feel like I'm I, or I, I used to be, especially as like a teenager, very like non physical. Right. Where like I didn't really touch people. I didn't go in for hugs that often. Mm-hmm. I like you know I. When someone was sitting beside me on a couch, I'd give them that inch. Like, I'd make sure I'd move over and, Mm -hmm. like, I wouldn't be kind of overlapping. In my adulthood, I've gotten more comfortable with that. And I've never been able to pinpoint why, other than that, I'm afraid of, like, offending people or getting, like, too close to someone who's, like, not wanting that. Well, I had that with with girls when I was a little kid just because we had so much PC um, lessons in school about, you know, bros and, like, sexism and... Um, bros making ladies uncomfortable and stuff that I didn't even know how to flirt with a girl until I was probably 14 years old. Yeah. You know, I felt super embarrassed about even making eye contact because you're like, oh, she's going to think you're a pervert making her uncomfortable in public and that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I can see that. Don't be a jerk. Don't ask her to dance. Give her some space, man. There's (laughs) there's definitely got to be something with like the people who are just like hyper afraid to to touch somebody other than people who are like just germaphobes because obviously that plays a huge part mm-hmm. people who are afraid of germs are afraid of your germs in specific for some reason they believe that their body is like a sterile creatureless environment but everyone else is like covered in fucking disgusting bacteria yeah my brother has a bit of that i think um he's he was telling me that he's been drinking this silver it's like two two percent silver mixed in like a water solution it's like very fine molecules of silver mixed in saline or whatever and the idea is that apparently like in victorian times the reason um uh there was an idea that like if you had silver cutlery like if you were born with a silver spoon in your mouth that Mm kind of thing that aristocrats would brag about right um it would lower your chance of getting sick because the silver has natural antibacterial properties and jrg believes that and i think that it's real i think that that it's hard for bacteria to grow on silver or whatever so anyways there's a sub community of of health people that believe if you drink 
um, silver in an aqueous kind of solution and get it into your blood, then it can do things like keep you well. And um, <laughs> I don't know. And I think I think you remember the Papa Smurf, the guy. Yeah. I think that he poisoned himself and turned himself blue by having too much of that silver stuff, that silver dioxide or whatever the hell it is. But I'd have to look it up. Here, <laughs> I've never heard that before. And it's well, it's remarkable. Like my brother's not an idiot; like he's a chemical engineer, right? And um, you can use this silver stuff to kill bacteria. Like there's, if you go to a hospital, he was explaining um, the pipes in the hospital would be some so clogged with bacteria, and you can't get the, rid of the bacteria with any other way. Even like harsh chemicals won't do it. But if you put this this uh, liquidated silver into the water, it cleans it right out. Like the bacteria dies immediately. Strange, so, strange magic. Yeah, build up your silver. It's that weird, al- like just alchemy and like it, it's it seems like fantasy to think that drinking silver would imbue you with some kind of like super immunity powers. <laughs> like people used to drink mercury and shit because they thought it did the same thing. There's always downsides, right? Yeah. It is killing the bacteria, but it's also killing you. Yeah, yeah. Is it like, okay, so if it's if it's powerful enough to just immediately kill all bacteria, how can you be so sure that that's good for you? And there's lots of good bacteria in your yeah. system that you need, yeah, so I thing. don't know how you balance it out. That's what I always want to like talk to germaphobes about. I want to ask them, like, do, well, do you understand that? sort of you're made of bacteria you're made of it you're like you're made of all sorts of like different creatures and things that are thriving off of your body and are like you're living in a weird like symbiotic relationship with like on your eye eyelashes and on everywhere in your body there's just like things crawling around you can't avoid them mm-hmm. they're on everything in the mm-hmm. planet except for things that have been like hyper sterilized and if you want to live in like a tin box that's been sterilized. They start convulsing as you're explaining this to them? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, that that has to be the ultimate, like, realization that would help you get over that fear is that, like, you can't win. Mm-hmm. There is no way to be sterile. Mm-hmm. In There's no way to sterilize your life in a way that you're never going to come in contact with yeah. bacteria or microorganisms. Cu- so why even try? I don't know. It's insane. It's an ins- like, you know. Yeah, well, and- you're right. It might be insane. It might have some sort of correlation with schizophrenia, right? Because it, it kind of reminds me of that classic schizophrenic paranoia that there's microphones and cameras in the walls. Yeah. Like on a, you know what I mean? It, it feels like a similar thing. Like being paranoid about these small creatures on your skin seems to have like the same vibe as being paranoid that you're being watched by an outside presence. It's a very self-aware kind of yeah. uh, headspace to be in. It's very strange. People like Howard Hughes. Uh-huh. You know, how did he end up like that? Because he seemed, re- like I mean, from all accounts, seemed regularly like adapted to life for the majority of his life. Right. And then all of the sudden, Went well, batty. not all of a sudden, but like slowly slipped into a point where like, just rambling by himself in a white sterilized room. Could have they could have been uh, head trauma from the from the crashes. Yeah, true. Um, it's it's Joe crazy. Rogan had um, some dude on some scientist that was was going on about severe brain injuries and all of the strange diseases that causes later in life, crazy manic depression and yeah. So well, just how and how it can just change you, right? Like the. The thing with, you know, our, our mutual pal, Jerome, like, he pulled that story, just like, you know, one slip off the bus mm-hmm. and hit his head, and then he couldn't 
couldn't remember what it was like before. Right. Right. And like he was, pers- he was just this person now, and mm-hmm. the di- the differences like were not obvious to himself. Like mm-hmm. there's no way for there's no point of reference. And that's like that's a really scary thought. You think of like you know that happened to him as a kid, and that's pretty scary. But imagine if that happened to you when you're like forty. Yeah, you hit your head and you come out a different person. You that don't remember you the don't, past. You don't remember the past or how you got there or why you're the way you are. Mm-hmm. And then there's something different about you, and everyone's telling you that. Everyone's saying, "Oh, you're really different." Like since the accident, and you just you can't understand why. Like, yeah. And there's no way to fix it. There's no way to go back on it. You just have to deal with being this new person. Yeah, and you have to carry, you'd have to start carrying some sort of explanation card that was like, I know we probably used to be friends and that you had some expectations about how I would be now, but now I'm a new dude and I'm open to getting to know you and yeah. you can uh, hang Maybe out. Maybe I'm and more stuff. fun. Maybe I'm an <laughs> asshole. I don't know. Like, and that, that's just crazy. It just shows how like fragile your brain is, right? There's nothing. That's to me. That's one of the strongest arguments for there not being against a soul. Against a soul, mm-hmm. right? Is that like your brain is your thought process and your personality is not this persistent element of your body. It can be like changed forever, irrevocably mm-hmm. damaged, yeah. and changed very, very easily. And people take that for granted. It's like a speaking spell. You go in there and you start messing with the wires. All of a sudden, the voice turns demonic. And... Yeah, and it's just like a <laughs> horrifying demon speaking spell. The mm-hmm. speaking hell. Or that um, <laughs> that great documentary, the Daniel and Devil, uh, Devil, the Devil, Devil and Daniel, Daniel Johnson. Yeah. Right? You see, you totally see the transformation of him throughout. Yeah. The um, home movies and stuff, right? How he became more and more. Uh, his fantasy world kind of just started to dominate. Right, where he's like, you know, he's manic depressive and he, he he's in a comfortable place for a while. Like, so long as he never leaves home, he's fine. Mm-hmm. And then, like, once he leaves and he goes and he fucking takes acid and watches the butthole surfers and fucking... <laughs> was that t- that's what did it, the butthole surfers? <laughs> that's, that's, the, that's the, the, like, big reveal in the movie sort of like you know he takes <laughs> i don't remember the butthole surfers in that movie yeah he he uh he takes acid at a butthole surfer show and uh you know obviously butthole surfer shows were like crazy and they like set symbols on fire yeah. and like bash them so it'd probably be a pretty intense experience in general if you're like a healthy minded person right hanging out at a butthole surfer show. wayne coins beside him yeah yeah taking <laughs> notes and like you know it being on acid and being not mentally stable to begin with that that seemed like the defining moment in his life where like things turned around and he started like losing it the jump off point losing ah we're the butthole surfers and we made uh, daniel johnson go off the deep end don't you remember don't you broke daniel johnson (laughs) don't you remember in that movie there's the part i don't i always wondered about this too where they interview the singer from the butthole surfers and uh they're interviewing him and he's having his teeth worked on Oh really? Yeah, he, he, I don't remember. They that. have him in a dentist chair, and they're like, like doing a root canal, or like, or like working on his teeth, and he's in between getting his teeth worked on, telling this story. Oh, and crazy. I always wondered if that was like a stipulation for him, where he said, mm. "Yeah, I'll do the interview, but you have to come to my dentist's office, and while I get this <laughs> fucking root canal." Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, that's cool. But anyways, back to the, your mind just being like just altered to it's a tough thing to even imagine mm-hmm. what it would be like to just be different. Right? Yeah. Like that's, 
it's almost like trying to think of when you're a kid. Mm. Like remember what it's actually like to be five years old. You can't. You can remember things that happened to you when you're five, and maybe some of the kind of basic reactions that you had, mm-hmm. um, like really broad stroke emotions. Like I felt happy. Yeah. Or I felt sad. But like, there's no way you can project your mind backwards and feel five. No. There's no way you can look at the world with that sort of like blind optimism or that sort of like childish filter. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of like, you know, we become different people in our mm-hmm. lives. We hit a certain point where like our brain changed forever and we stopped being able to feel that way. I do have I do have memories that have emotional cores though. I remember the thing that I associate most with being a kid was it was the time when I had the least amount of uh, emotional self control and the yeah. least amount of control over my world. Like you have absolutely no jurisdictional freedom. You know, like you're you're not control of where you live. You're not in control of what you're eating. You're not in control of your own bodily functions. Yeah, where you, know, you are like, in the world, and um, it's it's a super insecure place to be. So it's funny to like kind of view children through that empathetic lens. Yeah. Because a lot of their behavior makes more sense when you realize that that, that that's the point the point of view that they're looking at the world through. They're looking at the world through a, a point of view where they have no control over it. So they behave insecurely the same as anybody would if they were in prison or if they were Yeah. Mhm. It's strange. What's your earliest memory? I had um, been climbing up around the sink of my kitchen or my bathroom and I fell backwards and I hit my head Yeah. and I was, I got really, really sick. I started throwing up all over the, the ground the, on the, the laminate of the kitchen mm-hmm. and my mom was really worried and she scooped me up and then I ended up at the hospital and I was at the hospital for a while. I don't know, kind of in and out of knowing what was going on mm-hmm. and out of consciousness. And my um, aunt or my grandma had given me this little picture of the Virgin Mary mm-hmm. because my family's religious in the States. And I was holding on to that for a while. And that was kind how, of... How old are you here? I was probably two or three. Yeah. That's and about as far back as I can... Yeah. that's that's in, it's, it's interesting. I, I My mom had told me that story later on when I was a teenager or whatever, I was like, I remember that. Totally, I remember that. She's like, no, you were too young to remember. I was like, no, I remember it. And you think about how strange it would be to have a kid that was concussed at yeah. that age. And I wonder what how that changed my personality. Maybe that's why I'm the weird kid in my family is that I had a brain injury like when I was fell down and three, your head and you three came. years old. Uh, that's a pretty specific the memory. Root. Mm-hmm. My, mine's, mine's way more abstract, but it's vivid. Yeah. Where I, I must have been around two, and I, I also I kind of attribute this. It's like it was all all I can remember is, and I've described this to my mom because I thought it might have been a dream. Maybe this is some sort of like dream memory. Mm-hmm. But I described an apartment that I only lived in until I was three years old, so yeah. it had to happen before then. And I just remember lying on my back in a room that I can describe. Like I remember what the room looked like i just remember lying up and there being this like kind of weird um oscillating synthesizer sound which it's whatever my whatever my mom was listening to you know she listened to a lot of like david and david and like just weird weird late 80s early 90s like alt 
alt rock and stuff like that that was really synth heavy so whatever it was it was just like some instrumental intro or something like that to a song they're just like oscillating synth mm. and it's like sort of the first sound i can remember wow yeah and so sometimes i'll hear it i'll hear that same synth sound on like an old 80s keyboard or something like that does this make the hair stand up on your neck yeah, or something? yeah. every wow. time i get like chills down my spine where i'm just like yeah that's that's where it began like that sound is like the first musical thing i can remember ingesting yeah. Like, and, and, and hearing and like can vividly remember how it sounds. And it's strange. It was, it was like later on in life too that I remembered it really suddenly because I heard the sound again mm-hmm. and I was like, oh wow. And I could just remember. This That's perfect- so weird when the memories flood back like that. Have you ever visited a place where you grew up or whatever and yeah. you get hit by a smell and the smell brings back? You're oh, like that clay smell, that fucking clay smell that I'd smelled every year. All the time. There, there would be like, I get it a lot from, this air freshener smell that I'm never able to identify because it's always in like some office building or something like that. I walk by it. And Those I get Glade plugins? Some kind of Glade <laughs> something, but I get a whiff of this smell and it, I remember going, I, it's, I go back in time to being five and I can remember like that smell being in my house and like the video game I was playing when I smelled it. Like I, I it's, I find my memories really strongly tied mm-hmm. to sound and smell, even more than sight. Yeah. Like more than like seeing something when I hear or smell. It's it's so strongly connected to memory that it just like comes flooding back so suddenly. Mm-hmm. I couldn't believe when I visited my elementary school for the first time. Um, you know, probably a decade after I had left it, I couldn't believe how tiny everything was. Yeah. Like the, it's all miniature. Like they build elementary schools for for little people, which yeah. is obvious, but it's it's funny when you actually see it in practice. I had the same and feeling. It's the teachers. The reason that they seemed so exaggeratedly large, yeah, when you were a kid, is like there's a dollhouse effect that's going on. Yeah, <laughs> because the elementary school is small, and you've got these big people walking around through. Them. Yeah, I like I could I could recall my elementary school as being really big. And then going back later on in life, actually, the first time I went back in years where I like went back, I was on acid. I fucking wandered through the yard and then kind of like took a look around the school and was like looking through the windows, just trying not to seem like I was going to break in, just kind of looking at all the classrooms and stuff like that. And had that same effect. I was like, this is, it's so tiny. The you go scale find, comparison is crazy. You go find the grade six basketball court and you start <laughs> dunking the ball. Woo! <laughs> just like, yeah! Shack attack! Oh, Yeah. Oh, I would fucking school the, the, all the kids there now. You run into little Brendan through oh. some sort of time warp? Oh, little Brendan was a nerd. What advice would you give him? Stick up for yourself. Yeah? yeah. Against bullies? Yeah, in general. Mm-hmm. Like, being being so unsure of myself when I was a kid led me to just, like, you know, back down from a lot of things I knew I was right about. Yeah. And I feel like I really only got that sense of confidence like in my 20s mm-hmm. and it'd be really nice if i could like talk to my six-year-old self and be like they're not that much stronger than you buddy they're not that much bigger than you, you just yeah. gotta not be so weak i had um an arc in uh i think it was grade six i was in my first fight grade six or grade seven um this kid fred mamalette uh for some reason, he got it in his head that he wanted to fight me. You know, sometimes, like, happens, you don't yeah. even know where the, the grudge started. Yeah. It just manifests. And suddenly, there's, like, people that are coming up to you every single lunch hour and saying that so-and-so wants to kick your ass. And you got to yeah. fight him, right? 
And so I was pretty stubborn. Like I, I was kind of um, like I wasn't fearless and I couldn't handle myself, but I also didn't um, cower away. Like I wouldn't run away from something. Yeah. So I ended up f- fighting this guy. And what that meant was he basically punched me for 15 minutes or whatever till he got tired yeah and he, he was really he was really tough because like every time he would hit me he would run away so i i just wanted to engage right where we yeah. could trade some blows but he was so slippery like he was running backwards and hitting me and i thought that that was really unfair anyways <laughs> so i got back to the the class and the thing that you you realize immediately when you're fighting as a child is that it's way scarier in the build up to the fight than the actual fight because you're so small and weak that your punches don't do anything. Yeah. It's kind of fun to like throw punches at each other. Yeah. So I got back into the classroom and my face was kind of red from getting punched and I was sitting beside uh, I think this girl Miriam and she was like so what happened? And I was like you got in a fight. And then she's like did you win? And I was like I don't know. <laughs> so like, did it hurt? You're like mm, not really. Blah, blah, blah. And uh, there was never a second confrontation. <clears throat> but Fred was in uh, a gang that assimilated my friend group. Like, for some reason, I got less popular after that incident. Because, yeah, he, he punched you a bunch. Yeah, he punched <laughs> me a bunch. But I didn't fall down or anything. Yeah. I didn't, like, run away or anything. Yeah. And um, so then, um, like, six months later, one of my former best friends, Drew, wanted to fight me. And that became like a really strong identity crisis for me because I didn't want to fight one of my friends. Yeah. And I felt like a tremendous loser that I had all these people that I used to care about that had turned on me. Yeah. For no reason. And um, they were more popular than I was. So eventually like the, the, the sheeple like started just following the my my former friends yeah. in a herd. And, and like ins- going insecure kid thing that happens wandering right all over the schoolyard trying to find me and, and trying to start a fight between the thing. And it was it ended up being like a super hard character test to yeah. just like show up every day and stand in front of the people and say, I'm not going to fight. I'm not going to fight you. I'm not going to fight you. I'm not going to fight you. Yeah. Over and over and over. And then um, things died down everybody forgot i didn't end up talking to those those friends like through all of grade eight i started hanging out with um older kids that i knew that had gone off to high school i'd spend my weekends with them and stuff and then around grade 10 we were in high school and stuff and things everything had been forgotten and uh drew shows up one day for lunch and starts talking to me and uh it was basically kind of like uh cut the beef type of thing yeah it's like we don't know what happened. We don't even know why we were behaving that way. Yeah. Can we just forget about it and move on? Yeah, and I was just like, move on. sure. <laughs> I didn't have a grudge with you at the beginning and I don't have one now. Yeah. That's so strange. I don't know. Kids have something to prove, right? It's, it seems it's that insecurity. It was the thing. closest thing that I had personally experienced to that kind of collective insanity type yeah. of thing because nobody really knew what was going on. Yeah. Everyone just got well, gotten caught up in And especially, something. I don't know like if this is. I, I feel it's definitely not specific to our generation, but I remember my first fucking day of high school. Mm-hmm. It's grade nine. I had had one of the same experiences as you were like, you know, I'd been in a couple scuffles in elementary school, and then I had that moment where like someone punched me in the face like 10 times, but they were so weak. Nothing yeah. happened. I was yeah. just like, oh, fighting's really not that bad because no one can hurt each other. Then I get to high school, 
and I've changed from be going to a Catholic elementary school to a public high school, so I know nobody. All of my friends have gone out to a Catholic high school. I don't know anybody. And I'm just sort of like meeting people out in the front of the high school, and I get hit with a pop can, like a full, full of pop. Yeah. It Jesus. hits me, and I sort of raised my hands in sort of a what-the-fuck motion and looked up to see a kid who was like in grade 11 who was like a solid like six three, six four. He was, and I was, you know, at grade nine, I was puny. Yeah, yeah I was, yeah. you know, still growing quite a bit. So he was double my size, easy. And the mentality, nobody knew who I was. Mm-hmm. Nobody knew what was going on. Every single person outside crowded around and just started to scream, fight, 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 fight. like a fucking pack of animals. Yeah, and. He kicked the shit out of me. Wow. But I mean, like, I didn't fight back. I'm like, I don't want to fight you. I don't want to fight you. And he was just sort of like, you know, without saying it, too too bad. He punched me a bunch. And I'm like, you know, I'm not I'm not a bitch. <laughs> I took the punches. He punched me a bunch. He kind of, like, jumped off a bench and, like, gave me a weird, like, kick to Mortal the chest. Mortal Kombat kick. And I didn't fall. And I, wow. I was really, in my head, I was like, I can't hit him back because he's going to give up eventually. If I just keep kind of backing off. And getting close to the school, he's just gonna fucking he's gonna stop, and I can't fight him, but I also can't fall down because it's like my first day in school. I felt like I was in prison. Right. It was just like I have to stand my ground, and even if I'm gonna get my ass kicked, I can't cry and I can't fucking fall down mm-hmm. during it. So I just stood there and let him kick the shit out of me while he had the anger up, and then he just sort of like went fuck bitch and backed off from me and walked back and had a smoke. Wow. And I spent the rest of the day just being like, how did that happen? That was so fast. And being like, is this what my fucking life is going to be like every day now? Mm-hmm. Like, And then I ended up being in a class with that kid because wow. he's in grade 11 and he's a fucking idiot. Uh, so he's in a grade nine class. Trying to get his his uh, <laughs> math credit yeah, or whatever. Yeah, trying to still get a credit. He's failed three <laughs> times. And, uh, and he sits next to me. He's like, what's up, bitch? And doesn't do anything or say anything for the rest of the fucking time that I see him. He just kicked the shit out of me one day and then it was like, not cool, but like he would not even acknowledge my existence from that point on. Right. It was very confusing and very just like an eye opener. I was like, okay, well, people are strong enough in this high school to fucking legitimately hurt me. Mm -hmm. And there was a couple times where, you know, being someone who uh, did a lot of drugs and like partied a lot. Uh, made friends with the wrong people and kind of there's one situation where someone had basically ripped me off right. for a bunch of money and I told a bunch of people like what the fuck that guy ripped me off and then that dude was like I'm gonna kill you I'm gonna fucking beat the shit out of you and he was waiting for me in front of the high school every, he didn't even go to class wow. he was waiting for me so I stopped going oh, I would fucking yeah, I would hide scary. out in the, I would hide out in the graveyard I would leave my house and be like oh, going to school dad and I would go across the street and smoke weed in the fucking graveyard and just wait until 3.30 and then walk home so, and just be like, yep, I was at school all day. I did that for months. You were trying to avoid being killed by hanging out in the graveyard all day. Well, it was the... That's pretty cool. It was a big It was a big empty graveyard. It was yeah. right across the street from my house. And there was like lots of places where like trees where I could just kind of go sit and like chill out, bring a couple books with me, mm. get high. I, I had a Game Boy, you know, it was like I would just go Sounds and fun. I would write... It was fucked, and yeah. it really, like, it threw a monkey wrench in that semester because I was terrified of getting my ass kicked, and there was even, like, a show where Wolf Parade was playing, 
at the Ford plant, yeah. one of my favorite bands at the time, and the dude fucking showed up outside, and I snuck out the back and ran Jesus. home at top speed. Yeah. Because I was just like, he's so much bigger than me, and he does not give a shit. Mm-hmm. Like, he has no fucking qualms with kicking my head in. I was really lucky uh, going to Orchard Park in Hamilton when I did, because... It was a little bit like Revenge of the Nerds. Yeah. Like, the the dorkier, older kids above us completely took over the high school. We elected a nerd for, for class president. Um, the football team became so unpopular that they had to field grade nines on the senior football team. Mm-hmm. We started doing things like canceling um, prom in favor of having, like, a, a thrash night punk party. Um, we, we started doing a lot more... Um, outreach stuff where like we would do intramural things where the older students would have joint parties with the grade nines and stuff like yeah. kind of a communal thing where we were trying to actively get rid of that stigma and there was no initiations by the time we were in we were seniors yeah um we really tried to to change the atmosphere of the school into being more like a the hippies basically turned over, t- uh, took over. There was a way, there was a lot more of a culture of people sitting on the grass smoking cigarettes and playing acoustic guitar than there was that stereotypical high school thing where, um, you know, the, the jocks are the kings of the school. It ended up being that the jocks were kind of the losers by the time we were finished. But yeah, there was a a little bit of that in my school, but like to be completely honest, it was mostly geared toward the football and rugby teams, yeah. right? Like those two teams are like the, the thing. Yeah. The school prided itself on being rugby champions and football champions and blah, 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 blah. You get the end. Like there's there, we were there like the kids who were really like into the local music scene and like, you know, didn't want to fight anybody and just sort of wanted to be left alone and like play guitar mm-hmm. outside. Not pretty few and far between and didn't make it, a point to hang out at the school when they didn't need to. Right. Like, you know, at lunchtime, there's like plenty of places where a, like we could have gone and sat between the breezeways and play guitar, but everyone would just leave the school grounds and just kind of get away from the, cause there was just a lot of kids who hung out at the school while not actually going to the school. Oh and did, yeah. Did like sold drugs and were just like kind of intimidating mm-hmm. tough guy kids who like, I'm sure now are just like, Bored in losers, jail, bored losers in a small town, or possibly in jail, right? Mm-hmm. But there's just like a really strong element of that at the school. Mm-hmm. There's like a pizza shop right next where all the drug dealers hung out on the pizza shop porch and sold weed. And like, I don't know, it's just not a very friendly environment. Like, in the time that I was there, they went from having one cop to three. Wow, in four years, they had to get different cops to like come and patrol because they just had a lot of problems with fights and a lot of problems with people like selling drugs and like school grounds and shit. And what the hell was up with your principal and stuff? Why weren't they? We went through a couple different principals. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I don't know. It's like, how do you control, how do you control that? Right. It, well, I mean, it's a little easier at, at a, at a Catholic high school, for mm-hmm. example, especially in like a small town like Brantford, it's it's a little easier because they have strict uniform codes and the uniform kind of puts everybody on the same playing field. We're like, you can have small variations on what you're doing. You could like paint your nail, pol- nail polish. Some don't even allow that. Right. There's no signifiers. So there's no way for you to be singled out 
based on like what you like. There's no one can go that fucking t-shirt is stupid. Uh, or, like that band you like is fucking gay. Yeah. Like, blah blah blah. All the kind of shit that like you kind of hear at a public high school. So it's sort of a it levels everything out. It makes it easy to control those kind of conflicts and that kind of like segregation based mm. on like your likes. But at a public high school, it's just balls out. Like everyone dresses exactly the way they fucking want to, mm-hmm. and it m- makes the stark differences between everyone very obvious where like the gangster kids are hanging out and you walk by and they're like emo fag and you're just like right. oh, fuck every day yeah every single day and it's just like i'm not dressed i'm just i'm just dressing the way i feel like dressing yeah it's not to be whatever you're identifying me as but like that just makes you hate me it mm-hmm. like puts me apart from you and creates a, that space for you to fucking mock me yeah and like you know harass me mm-hmm. it's it, I, you know, it may have been that I just have a selective memory. It may have been worse than I'm I'm imagining, but yeah. after my experience, the warm up rounds of going through grade seven and eight, where like my best friends were targeting me. Yeah. Um, by the time I got to high school, like even if there was people that called me names or whatever, it just rolled right off my back. You know, I had a yeah. pretty good skin to yeah. ignore it. I had to I had to put up with a lot of that. I mean, just to. Because of the nature of who I was, going to shows all the time and like you know doing a lot of psychedelics and stuff like that, tons and tons of rumors about, um, just that I was like a fucking slut. That I you know there's just I I remember coming to school and I fa- at the time I was like that's a hilarious rumor. It, it was like the rumor that I had like finger banged a bunch of different chicks at the same party in one night, and I was just like, who would spread that? And also that's kind of hilarious, doesn't that is doesn't that play like into that whole like oh if you're fucking you're cool. Right, like that's in high school. It's basically like, oh, if you're getting laid, then you're doing pretty well. Sure, they were criticizing you for having yeah, getting too for, much action, you know, <laughs> or, or for just for being like a fucking dirty skeeve bag, and like you know the nicknames like Crack Attack Black and stuff yeah. like that. Where it, the, the accepted rumor was that I was like a crackhead or like you know high on meth or something like that, and I just like. I ignored it as long as I could until it just really started to like wear down at my defenses and I just stopped going. I was right. just like, fuck it. I'm like, I'll just do my work from home mm-hmm. and it eventually got to the point where I just had to get my GED. I right? wonder like, I wonder um, if it would help kids at all to recognize that it has nothing to do with you. Like kids will target one another for anything that they see that they can latch on to. Yeah. So in absence of anything else, they'll say you look at that stupid orange shirt that you're wearing orange shirt orange shirt over and over and over again until they get under your skin right they're just looking for anything to latch on to it has nothing to do with your interests kids kids are the original trolls totally where they're just like looking for that reaction I, i remember like bully behavior from when i was a kid and really how like it was completely dependent on the group mm-hmm. where the, like one of my worst bullies as a kid would oh, one-on-one we'd be good great pals mm-hmm. i'd go over to his house we'd have our like moments where like you know we were friends he'd be like ah oh, come over and we'd like play video games and hang out and like go play football and just like you know it'd be completely fine and then the next day at school he'd be like fucking faggot and like try and fight me and it's just like the second that there's kids around right. other kids around your personality is completely different yeah the like, kids are so two-faced because of like that weird like crowd mentality and there was there was an opposite example of it too, where there was one kid at school who I was like friends with at school and he was really religious. 
Yeah. His name was like Steven. And he was like super, he was nice. He was really smart. He kind of had that nervous energy about him where he was like always trying to please. Mm-hmm. And he was like so nonviolent and so chill when people were around. And then I hung out with him yeah. at his house one-on-one and he was fucking crazy. Wow. He threw shit at me and was like <laughs> screaming at his mom and like was going fucking ape shit. Yeah. So he, when the crowd was around, he clammed up and yeah. he got like really good and it made him uh a very conscious, like, good person. But as soon as it was one-on-one, he was fucking crazy. Kind of like, like a stand-up comic or something. Yeah, yeah. He it needed was, the intensity. Yeah, it's weird how, like, you know, kids are all, like, have that weird two-faced duality mm-hmm. where, like, they can be completely different people to one person and then to, a, like, a group I of had people. a sleepover party with, with one of my friends. And, um, you know, we played Nintendo or whatever, and then it was time to go to bed. And around 11 o'clock, we'd been asleep for a couple hours, he started yeah. screaming in the middle of the night, and he started screaming um, Star Trek references. I was like, that's weird. And his mom like rushed in, and she was trying to snap him out of it because he was sleepwalking. Like He was still asleep, even though he was talking and his eyes were open. Yeah. And he kept on rejecting her and screaming out that she was Counselor Troy. He's like, don't touch me. You're Counselor Troy. You're Counselor Troy. <laughs> and I thought it was so surreal and crazy. And then... I kind of forgot about it for a while and a couple of weeks went by and I confided in somebody. I'm like, you ever slept over at so-and-so's place? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, did he have a fit in the middle of the night? Anything crazy going on? He's like, yeah. He started he started screaming all this Star Trek stuff and started talking about Counselor Troy and things. It's like, holy shit. It's, it's, a, it's a pathology. It happens all the time. You know, it's a repeated thing. So oh, that, I mean... That sucks, but also just imagine how awesome your life would be if you're having Star Trek dreams like, on the on the reg, like every- and that they were so vivid that yeah, you would wake up. You're, they're like night terrors where you're just like you're waking up from these amazing episodes of the Next Generation that your mind has been crafting all night. When you're like, you know, Counselor Troy is trying to kill you. What the hell was Counselor Troy doing in those dreams? Oh Jesus Christ! Maybe she was touching his penis or something, but he didn't know how to interpret those feelings. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Counselor Troy had to be had to be a pretty like a uh, pretty strong sexual role model for a lot of kids. Like, yeah, like they're one of their first. Her and uh, Jillian Anderson. Jillian Anderson, yeah. That. <laughs> I don't know. I was never really in, much into Counselor Troy though. I was. I was. It's a not Dr. so much Crusher. that it's not so much that she's super hot. It's that she was there. She was a lady, uh, you know, a curvy lady in a leotard that you saw on your show. Day yeah. to day, yeah. Uh, you know, it was just Batman cartoons and Star Trek, so she's the only like real woman. Yeah, and that that sort of like just straight on sex appeal character they like tried to put in. They they always have a girl in a, like a, a suit, like a onesie <laughs> suit that just like just really really hugs hugs uh. those curves. <laughs> You know, and they had to add that into Voyager to make it good. Mm-hmm. They the, the storylines were good, but the cast was terrible, mm-hmm. and so eventually they're just like, "Oh, we have to save this sinking ship." <laughs> so they just got the hottest girl that would agree to be on the show, they and they three D printed her out, and they put the tightest possible restrictive costume on her that basically may as well have just been painted on. It's crazy to to look at clips from that show because you forget how voluptuous she was. She's a- fucking bombshell stacked like, and what's she doing now she never became a star after she that. was on like boston legal uh, after that and yeah i don't know that she does much dressing down they got rid of the leotard she I, should have been the leotard I lawyer think the, i think the problem probably was that she was uh 
she was typecast. Like, mm. you know, she she played the sort of like the sexy relief on a show and it was probably hard for her to get past that part of her character she needed the same agent as like angelina jolie or something yeah yeah because that lady's got no more talent her her character on the show is is sort of purposefully bland Mm. because she's (laughs) supposed to be like a borg that's like remembering her humanity she's kind of supposed to be the like data character of the show they split that role because they you know it was all about trying to recapture lightning in a bottle right uh where they had the doctor and the doctor kind of had those characteristics too where he was a hologram who wanted to like expand his program so they could be more human pinocchio type of thing yeah pinocchio thing mm-hmm. where like you know data was the pinocchio he wanted to be a real boy and like you always saw little like pieces of it where he'd get he'd start to get the human experience and that was like a really exciting thing to watch for the first time when like data has his first emotion and he starts laughing because q gives and brent spiner is a good actor he totally he totally sold it oh man brent spiner is an amazing actor there's something about the the choice of that kind of sickly green gold makeup that they put him into that made it work and the contact lenses yeah that's true Mm mm-hmm I was going to say, uh, when you mentioned Dr. Crusher, you thought that she was the hotter out of the two? Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think that's where my fascination with red hair started. <laughs> where I was just like this beautiful red-haired Irish goddess. That's true. You do like redheads, eh? I do. And I just like seeing this crazy like sp- space Irish goddess that was like, oh, God. I didn't really get Leslie Crusher until I saw the making of The Labyrinth and she's introduced as the choreographer on labyrinth because apparently she was a famous choreographer before she went into acting oh yeah and that's why every so often they'll sprinkle some dance sequences into star trek they seem to like they understand after a couple seasons of writing they got to know the actors behind the thing yeah and they're like what's your what's your little touch what do you want to bring to this character that we'll we'll write it into an episode don't worry about it we'll make it work oh it's beautiful to watch that unfold too like more than anything, especially if you watch it sequentially, like you sit <laughs> and you just start watching it and like you always pick up where you left off. Yeah. It like you start to call who directed the episode because th- some of the cast start directing episodes, right? Right, right, and, right. Uh, the guy who played Will Riker. He's got his trumpet out. It must be a Riker episode. Ex- yeah, he's got the trombone <laughs> out or if it just opens with him like seducing a lady. <laughs> You'd be like, oh, it's totally going to be a Riker heavy episode. Um, yeah, and the, yeah, oh, it's just so funny. You start to see their characteristics sort of unfold, and uh, Michael Dorn as Worf, just like deadpan Dorn, <laughs> like just complete. Uh, I don't. I don't even. I'm know. anxious to come out of retirement if you'll have me. Oh yeah, I want that show to happen. <laughs> Star Trek Worf. Would be fucking unbelievable. Like, it would be so good. And you know that if if they made that, every other cast member would be willing to guest star on it. If they made a show that was just about war, for sure the rest of them would come on. They're all going to have to go to fat camp, though. They all look pretty good. They've been doing, like, Star Trek uh, reunions at Fan Expo and Comic-Con and stuff like that. Yeah. They're all looking pretty good. No worries. Except for Denise Crosby, who played Tasha Yar. Yeah. Who, like, they killed off because she was such a terrible character. But I feel like, uh, and I I feel like she had some kind of in. She was, you know, jerking off one of the producers or something like that. Because 
even though she was the most hated character, they killed her off super unceremoniously. Like, just in the first two minutes of an episode, she gets fucking swallowed by the black tar beast, and yeah. then, like, that's it. Uh, Several memorials followed, though. Yeah, and then they bring her, they figure out ways to bring Denise Crosby back, at, where it's just, like, her twin sister, or, like, the da- her daughter from the future, or Tasha Yar from an alternate dimension. Or just a memory. And Yeah, yeah, and, like, there'll just be episodes of, like, alternate timelines, and she's like, oh, God, no, she's back. Why? <laughs> she fucking skip, 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 just, like, and... She is definitely the hackiest person on that cast where you watch the videos of the Comic-Con uh, like panels and they're introducing everybody and every com- everyone comes out nice and reserved, smiling and waving. They're like, oh, Patrick Stewart. And he comes out and like he hugs all the other cast members and like, you know, then they're like, Denise Crosby. <laughs> and her, her intro in comparison to the other people walking on stage is four times as long she comes out and she dances around the stage she's like running out into the audience being like whoa yeah she's dumpy and just dressed like <laughs> dressed like she just like she's having breakfast you know? right she's like no one's around right she's been living in her car yeah and she she gets the most like subdued response from the audience <laughs> and she's hamming it up so hard yeah i just i couldn't understand that show's obsession with that actress and why they kept bringing her back even though they decided to kill her off for good reason right she's bad she's bad at her job there's uh, I was looking on Wired and they were talking about this new subculture that takes advantage of the fact that you're str- you're able to stream any of these episodes anytime you want. Yeah. So it allows you it allows people to construct a new continuity yeah. out of the assemblage of the assembled episodes. So I remember like you showed me a supercut of Voyager that was all the one plot line leading up to Deep Space Nine. Deep Space Nine yeah, leading up to the- like a civil war, right? Yeah, yeah. That's that's like a, a classic example. Um, Wired was doing uh, a series of supercuts, one of which was like watching Mad Men as if it's a horror show. Right. Because if you, I don't know if you follow Mad Men. Do you follow Mad Men? No. There's um, been a number of sections in that show that have involved like ghost encounters. Because mm-hmm. Don Draper's a little crazy. Yeah. Um, he's an imposter and um, he has had a number of circumstances where deliberate choices that he's made have led to the suicide of like family members and friends and stuff. Right. right? And generally when a character dies uh, on the show, Don will be visited by their ghost. Right. And so if you were to take the five or six episodes where people have died and come back and, and run them all together, Mad Men as a series would have a very different context, a different feel. Yeah. And I think that's a that's a an interesting kind of shift for pop culture where yeah. like you can rewatch Breaking Bad in a different uh, edited in a different way that'll give you that'll uh, accent different parts of the themes that you didn't yeah. see the first time. I, I like I like doing that. I do that on my own where there, I had formulated this idea and it, it's really like based off of just a couple episodes of Trailer Park Boys mm-hmm. where and especially if you watch them in a certain order and you like you left out certain things it, it's almost like a a fight club situation where <laughs> I, where Randy is a part of Mr. Leahy's personality like he doesn't exist yeah. he he's just Mr. Leahy he's he's the part the liquor aspect of Mr. Leahy and there's like this one 
episode, one episode, it's like a, a special they did. It's like kind of the last thing they did before this newest season. Right. It's like years and years and years ago. But uh, there's a part where he's looking into a mirror and he's like, nah, I don't know why I ever teamed up with Sam. Maybe I'm not the liquor. And Randy comes in <laughs> with like a liquor sickle, like a popsicle. He's like, oh, try this and tell me you're not the liquor. And then it just kind of zooms in a little bit. He's like, you are the liquor, liquor Mr. Leahy. You've always been the liquor. The Shining. Wow. Yeah. And it, it's sort of like Randy is that like that aspect of his personality that is like troubled by the liquor. Mm-hmm. And that any, you can imagine any time you're seeing Randy directly interact with anyone. It's just Mr. Leahy, and they're treating. They're just going fuck off, Randy, because they know it's the, his other personality that's, that's hanging awesome. around. Yeah, it's it, obviously there are parts in the show where the interaction becomes too intricate for it to really support that. But like you're saying, you could edit a few of those pieces together and construct that narrative yeah. from already existing. I just have a surface level understanding of of Trailer Bark Boys. I've kind of uh, shotgunned a few episodes, just like scattershot, and. Um, it does seem from the stuff that I saw that as Leahy, um, his relationship gets closer and closer with Randy, like more overtly in like early episodes. It's not obvious that the two of them are going out or whatever, yeah. right? Like they're living together. Yeah. But as he gets more and more drunk, their relationship gets closer. Yeah. So. But then it's also, it's also a big theme in the show where like it's, it's never, it's never consistent on whether or not Randy wants him to drink or doesn't want him to drink. <laughs> There'll be some seasons where Randy is feeding him alcohol and adding to the liquor insanity. And then there are other seasons where he leaves because Leahy's too drunk. Right. And it's this constant like battle of like falling in and out, which is it sort of represents that like that battle with alcoholism, right? Where like sometimes the liquor is his best friend. And sometimes, like, the liquor fails him and leaves on him. Like, his best friend kind of leaves, and he finds himself, like, fighting on his own and, like, evaluating his own alcoholism. Right. And, yeah, the show has that very, like, a Groundhog Day kind of feel where every season is the same storyline with very, very minor (laughs) variations. It's, like, a very popular theme in the show is that, like, Leahy's changed, but he doesn't. <laughs> and at the end, he reveals that he's been just as crazy and trying to get them the whole time. And there's always like, you know, this, we're not going to go to jail ever again. We're going to do this one last big crime and then retire. <laughs> and it's it's always the exact, it's like a Groundhog Day situation where it just is always the same. It always ends up the same, but it's always different enough to be entertaining. Mm-hmm. Which is sort of, I would like, I, I would kind of compare it to something like Bruce Springsteen's music. Right. Where it's always the same. same. He writes the same song a hundred times with just tiny little variations on it, on the theme. And it's, it's somehow just different enough to be entertaining. Same with like Tom Waits. And they've set it up. If you like one, you're going to be happy because you'll like them all. Yeah. It's sort of like if you like Dogg, you said the same thing about Snoop Dogg. Yeah. Where his, his music it's like the same thing. It's always Snoop Dogg. It's always him, right? Like Calvin Brodius has a certain voice and a certain style, and no matter what kind of music he does, it's always the same. It's always him. It's always the same sensibilities, the same things he's talking about, the same kind of outlook on life. It doesn't matter how you package it. It's still 
him. It's yeah. always Tom Waits. It's always Bruce Springsteen. It's always Bob Dylan. Mm-hmm. Those those people can write the same song a million times, and every, people will like it. People yeah. will listen to it. And there's it, it comes also from you know the structure of old blues songs, right? Like there's yeah. old blues songs that are the same four chords over and over again, and they're just yeah. changing the lyrics. So there's a tradition of it. Yeah, and I mean. Um, it's, it's a surreal thing because like when your friend busts out an acoustic guitar, the simple songs you can, you can hear over and over and you can swap the lyrics around and it totally works. Yeah. It's more about like, it's, it's just a medium. It's like a conversation medium, right? Like we don't arduously try to, um, make when we're just having a conversation with each other, we don't try to package it in a unique and, and artistic way every time we say something. Right. You know, we're trying to, as simply as possible, connect our consciousnesses, and I'm trying to pass an idea from your head, uh, my head to your head. Yeah. And if anything, it becomes frustrating and a little obnoxious when somebody tries to be too creative with that. Yeah. You know, you obviously want to be able to, um, you obviously want to compose a sentence that's going to be interesting from beginning to end, but you also don't want to have the the style like get in the way of the idea yeah it's a mm-hmm. it's a tri- tricky balance and like you'll see all like the best bands ha- find a happy medium yeah between breaking the rules and being creative with the musicality side of things but also being very honest and mm-hmm. very open and and singing about things that are like very very true yeah. to them yeah i mean like as a local example i would say something like odonis odonis which like has a lot of interesting musicality but also dean's lyrics and his the delivery of his lyrics are very um very honest and quite obviously come from a a place of honesty from like from his life you know he's he's relating his experiences he's not just making noise for the sake of making noise Mm -hmm. and that's what's immediately evident about his music which makes people love it it's that, it's a funny thing, like, <clears throat> I think that you can kind of divide song lyrics into two categories. If you're trying to talk about something that's from your life, mm-hmm. you can be as overt as possible, and as long as you're just being honest about something that you care about or something that happened to you, mm-hmm. that's fine, that works. Yeah. If you're going to talk about anything that's grander, like mm-hmm. philosophy or an issue in the world, yeah. people like it oblique. They like it to be this Christopher Nolan puzzle that you got to twist around and kind of figure out yeah um if it's a bit too obvious then people get upset what's going on in the world today it's a crazy <laughs> old world today something <laughs> right with the world today. something wrong with the president <laughs> crazy world today just Hell like the yeah, thief? more or less yeah <laughs> <laughs> just like yeah i don't know that's uh, that kind of songwriting where people are just pretentiously like you know, again, I just call it making noise for the sake of making noise, and like you know, they would they could just put anything. The lyrics are just like complete nonsense, mm-hmm. or just a bunch of like empty metaphors. Yeah, it's obvious every. And time. I mean, when you get, I I think that style wise, when you get into um, just cliche, when you're just getting into rhetoric, mm-hmm. I think that the reason people don't, it doesn't resonate with people, is that you've you've stripped the emotion out of it. Mm-hmm. Like one thing that's cool about coming up with poetry or oblique ways of explaining something that's slightly pretentious yeah is that um it can uh it can circumvent that a little bit it can you know buffer it yeah i find that like 
a re a not recent but a recent enough example of style getting in the way of substance mm-hmm. um it there you know the artist sun kill moon he one of his first efforts was a a, an album of Modest Mouse covers, oh. right? It was all Modest Mouse covers, pretty much from their first two or three albums, where their musicality, it for some people is really great, but for someone who's not re- not really into that type of music, that's not a good place to start, right? And and it'd be kind of abrasive and a bit harsh for a lot of people, and so the lead singer of Modest Mouse is a beautiful lyricist his fucking lyrics are amazing and obviously it's another one of those people where it's coming from his heart and like you know he's at least back then his lyrics were just very very compelling but could get lost in the sort of like cacophony of modest mouse and like the music the instrumentals so sun kill moon stripped that all down and turned these like 10 or so modest mouse songs into like kind of straight sad folk songs Wow, they're, cool. They're heart wrenching. Yeah. Like and it delivers the message in a way that's just could not be misinterpreted or misunderstood by anybody. Mm-hmm. Right? Like so accessible and so easy to wrap your head around that you can just listen to the lyrics yeah. and imagine what he's writing about yeah. rather than having to peel through layers of noise and of like strangeness to really get to the message. Mm-hmm. I think that's really powerful. Like I that album really speaks volumes about simplicity yeah you know brevity and like simplicity and being able to strip things down to their most simple configurations i know very little about music but i've always felt like you can judge a song by its ability to be reproduced on acoustic guitar yep if you can't strip the song down and just be able to like sing it and play it with one instrument then you you may have entered into prog territory. Yeah, if there's not one part of the song, even like an electronic dance song that has like a hook, if there's not like a hook that you can pick out on guitar on like one string or whatever, you know, when you're fucking around, then something's wrong with the song. Mm-hmm. There's not, there's nothing, I don't want to say there's nothing catchy about it, but that kind of is what the most obvious reaction is. It's that. not the, there's a lot of different ways to build music and I think what um the kind of music that i'm describing it it takes from a tradition of like the epic poem yeah you know these are really ancient the idea of like a hook and a rhyme and a chorus these are all really ancient techniques for being able to put an idea in another person's head yeah and help them remember it and help them be able to recite it yeah and i I don't think it's something that like should be trivialized yeah you know people just go like oh that's just pop yeah, but people and people love like there's a I think very like subconscious um, compulsion in the human brain that people like to speak as a chorus. Mm-hmm. They like to be a part of something, which is why I read an article recently about like woes and ohs and ahs and songs. You know, like the big arcade fire, like whoa, whoa, and how that I'll was that in. just like <laughs> tripe. Yeah, yeah, splice it in. <laughs> And, uh, and, you know, like, kind of how it was tripe and blah, 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 blah. Like, it's not a substitution for lyrics. And it's like, well, you're really so surprised that that kind of simplicity, like, just complete just feeling with no actual, like, interpretation put over it, right? Just, like, going, whoa. Like, like just kind of calling out, like, howling with your fellow humans mm-hmm. is that the way I see it. Where, like, you see 
a thousand people at an arcade fire show all wailing the same melody and it's a sense of togetherness that like unless you felt that unless you've been a part of something like that um you can't quite understand why it's so compelling yeah and i would i would want to follow up with that person who said that and go like so when you if you teleported back to 2004 and you heard that song you know where was your headspace at where you heard that song and you were like fags all singing along together yeah i'm gonna go do my own thing it's like because it it, you know in like the post september 11th that that was the perfect time for that stuff because people were feeling really alone yeah and um it was a great uh, anthem for art art kids and and i've definitely coming together i've definitely had moments of like you know pure bliss back at the ford plant days you know Winter Sleep had one of those songs that had like a big, just like a vocal, like mm-hmm. kind of call. The Sour Keys had like a really simple um, thing that they ripped off from that song, Rasputin. We were just like, I don't know what's a part left to center. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And they would just do that. And we would pour out of the street, like on those closing songs that had those big round like hooks that everybody knew the words to and everyone could sing pour out onto the streets of Brantford just losing it with the band and just like singing it for 10 minutes right like just dragging it out as long as physically possible because it was just that like never wanting it to end yeah. feeling right like sense of togetherness kind and how we were all feeling the same thing about this band being yeah. so excited about how good that fucking set was that we're just losing our shit and like I feel like if you haven't had that in your life, you need to fucking find a band you really like and go to a show like that. Like try and find a band that's got that hooky song that yeah. you guaranteed everybody is going to sing along to. And if you can never relax enough to be able to get lost, you you need to like smoke smoke marijuana S- or something, or shit, you need to investigate drunk. something that you're doing because. It sounds like that person's really angry. Go, go. Well, I mean, it got way more into it. And there's a couple articles, I think, going on. One pro and one mm-hmm. anti-woos. It definitely got overused. Like, by the time we got into 2010, there was a lot of people who were emulating that and trying to recreate it. But it had just become a copy of a copy. Yeah, absolutely. Lost its like power. any other musical Glockenspiel. Yeah, Glockenspiel, <laughs> like fucking Southern Southern Ontario twee bullshit, right? Like fucking Glockenspiel and ukuleles and, uh, you know, woe-o's and like cutesy names and fucking, you know, gimmicks. It's all, like any musical trope, the more it's used, the less interesting it gets. It's like when Autotune came around and those first few Autotune songs came out and like really good rappers were kind of like doing this auto-tune thing and I was like yeah that's fucking cool <laughs> and then like a few years later all anybody wanted was just one pop song or rap song that didn't have try to use auto-tune yeah. you know and who was, thought that that had so such legs it really really carried on and <laughs> like t-pain i guess was maybe one of the first ones t-pain and akon my favorite was auto-tune the news yeah, that's good that too, brilliant. but like, you know, even that got old pretty quick, right? Where yeah, like, I don't know what happened to them. They they really lost steam. I, I was hoping that they would that, keep making stuff every week. It's a musical troupe week. that is only funny and interesting so many times, right? Mm-hmm. It'd, be, it'd just be exactly like a song with the same three chords. Right. Like, you know, really, really good, but then that artist brings, like, Psy, for example, he puts out that Ooh, first style. song. 
Yeah, he, he puts out Gangnam Style, and it's like a billion views, and then he puts out the second song, that fucking Gentleman song. Half a and billion. It's, and only it's, half a billion, a it's, it's the exact same song, yes. right? And that's why when people were like, oh, a new Psy song, you were like, oh, I wonder what he did different. What's going to be the new thing to come out of Psy? Like, what's, let's get more substance, more of his style, more of his like uniqueness, and instead it was just the exact same song repackaged to try and get views, and... It didn't do anywhere near as well, and he's done that over and over and over now where he's he's using his musical trope too often and relying on it too heavily and mm. that he's just going to disappear, right? Like, I don't know. You know what's the exact opposite of your story about spilling out from the concert, singing those happy songs and what's that? being up in the moment? The uh, Woodstock two or whatever where Limp Bizkit made everybody burn burn down the fucking Woodstock funneling thousands and thousands of people into a a concrete covered Air Force base and charging them $20 for water it's going to be really hot they're going to stand on tarmac there's not going to be available water. We're going make... to get all the Family Values bands <laughs> to come out and piss off all of these disgruntled white kids. And then we'll get the Pinnacle Douchebag band to come out and go, burn this motherfucker <laughs> down! And talk about irony that it's, it's an example of the Woodstock guys doing a complete 180 and yeah. turning a mostly free festival against war and, and corporatism and stuff yeah. into an totally corporate event with maximum security and maximum profit margins. Yeah. And then you, you put in bands like, I wasn't raged against the machine there. Yeah. You can start singing about anti-corporatism and stuff at Woodstock 2. Oh yeah. TM. Super, super fucking anti-corporate. You've basically stripped everything from Woodstock. You Mm -hmm. might as well have just called it something else. It was almost a sham to call it Woodstock. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's funny, though. And so you you (laughs) see, like, how uh, an anthem is used to incite just, like, total, you know, the worst aspects of people and how different the generations shifted. Like, that's only uh, five years in the future, right? You go from having negative anthems where people are... It wasn't even bad time. It was like the boom times. It was the 90s. Everybody was doing well. They're middle-class kids, but they just want to wreck shit. And then you've got post-September 11th where everybody's like scared and paranoid and yeah. they're celebrating uh, life and stuff. So it's how the fuck does that days. work? Oh. I don't want to wake up. I'm like a chainsaw. Yeah. <laughs> you don't really know why, but you want to justify ripping someone's head off. <laughs> what? Did, <laughs> you, did, you, you? did you form any new metal bands in that no. <laughs> What were you playing? Uh, I wasn't really playing music much back then. I mean, I played guitar so the stuff I was coming up with was like weird, like, uh, like middle ages, English, like ballad music. We're just like, and the loot. Well, no, just like, just like six overlapping guitar tracks that are really like newly like, <laughs> just instrumental. You're walking, you're walking barefoot through the streets of Brantford playing your multi track. It's really haunting fucking stuff which is like you know that's uh, that was what was in me at the time i didn't really feel very angry i felt angry but i wasn't angry enough to want to fucking break shit and like write music that reflected that 
I have to admit that that some of our songs were were pretty aggressive <laughs> at the time. The songs that my friend Charles was. Writing. I feel like the most aggressive band I've probably been in is Cartoons, and even that's not very like truly aggressive. It's loud and punchy, but. Uh, like the songs are about like Cheetos and fucking tuna and like Denim's hometown and stuff like that. <laughs> They're not about breaking shit and like, you know, being pissed off at your friends and parents. That's a brilliant liner note, by the way. You should totally just put that right in the... What? Everything you just said. Oh, yeah. They're about Cheetos and tuna fish. Yeah, like there's... <laughs> there's nothing deep in here. No, the, yeah, the, the subject material is not reflective of the, the loudest of the music for the most part. Well, sometimes it is, but... Whatever. I've never been in a really angry band. I wonder if it always does uh, does those 180s where it's like, you know, if you want real dissident music right now, you got to listen to like Godspeed or something. Yeah. You know? And if you want um, kind of, you know, shallow tuna fish music like you're describing, <laughs> you want to go into like the, the punk category. Yeah. And then when, you know, five years probably go into the future and suddenly the classical rock the classical prog, the classical like dark stuff that becomes the music that you don't take very seriously. And the punk stuff becomes more deep yeah. again. I wonder, I, I don't know how it's going to go. Shifting I feel, interests. I feel like the, the <clears throat> shift in like musical appreciation is going to be really different. Like we're, we've already seen in like the last 10 years because of the, the introduction of the internet and like an open platform to just be a musician without any of the, the struggles of like, Oh, I have to get, a label to like pick me up and I gotta like I gotta impress scouts and blah blah blah, blah. like to get your preoccupations music. I yeah. would say is a good description of that exactly stuff. where where now the idea of like I could make music and people could hear it right after and it would just be a matter of like is the music good mm-hmm. then people will listen to it it changed the way that the speed at which music is changing and the way that trends come and go yep. where something something like auto-tune uh might have lasted an entire like decade and a half yeah in like the 60s right like sounds came around and then they stuck around yeah for the entire decade and longer and it was a real like it was a shock i when couldn't a new sound took over i was driving up to tromblon with cam Tomset, and he put on serious 90s radio yeah it was the same 15 songs over and over and over and over again yeah and if you were to just off the top of your head name 15 songs from the 90s you'd probably come up with the same 15 yeah right it seems like no matter i think that now that we're into the internet era that's not going to happen anymore yeah but it's definitely like the the uh, songs of the 60s, songs of the 70s, songs of the 80s. There ended up being songs of the 90s. There's probably a songs of, of the, the aughts yeah, that the you odds, could yeah. put together with like Outkast and stuff. Outkast. But that's broken down sad. now. I don't even know what the fuck you would do. Yeah. Oh, for this, for the amount of content and the variety of content that's coming out and is popular, popularized mm-hmm. in modern music is is insane. There's no way to keep up and there's there's no that restrictive nature of the music industry can't keep that sound around anymore right like you know like disco pops up again it comes back and like is gone one just, track just as just as quickly as it was back again and yeah. like all these kinds of music are popping up having a few hits and then disappearing because something completely different comes along mm-hmm. and all these kids who are growing up with that as their reality where like they've never had to just listen to the same CD 
over and over and over and over, right? Like That's all they, we got. That, you know, you, all the only CDs you have are you watch much music and you get what you get from much music on a daily basis. And that was like the closest thing to variety in music. How does getting. someone stay a Kiss fan for multiple generations? That's what I would like to know. Well, and that's, you know, it's it's going to be harder for artists to make that kind of lasting impact because mm-hmm. they're not going to be hanging around quite as long. They're not going to be a part of the the popular and um, let me throw this mind fuck at you you're becoming more people over the course of your life yeah so what i'm saying is like it used to be that you know joe buttfuck from you know dundas or whatever he gets a job at the ford plant and he's there listening to the same fucking songs on his classic rock radio his whole time there He's not really progressing as a human very much. Yeah. Like, the, what the, one thing that the internet allows you to do if you're interested is you could take up an interest in biochemistry or you could take up an interest in J-pop or you could take yeah. up an interest in blank. Yeah. And over the course of uh, a few months, develop a whole new set of interests that turn you into a different person. Yeah. So suddenly, you know, your taste is different because you listen to different stuff. So quickly. And there, there are kids born in the last 10 years who are going to mature into adults having never known anything otherwise right Mm -hmm. like they're just going to have this infinite access to different kinds of music all movies all tv shows from history uh and from around the world subtitled and translated they'll be able to go through a million phases you know teenagers could potentially be like changing every month Mm -hmm. like a kid could go through like 50 different phases in high school of all these different things he's discovering, getting obsessed with, and then getting bored of as he discovers a new interest. Yeah. Right? I think of how the internet affected me as an early adopter, having it when I was like pretty young and all throughout high school and having kids I knew who didn't have the internet, didn't have computers and stuff like that, and how my music appreciation over most of the kids in my class mm-hmm. and the th- amount of things I knew about music-wise, TV-wise, movies-wise uh, set me apart from them where, like, I felt weird. Like, I felt kind of like an outcast in a way where, like, you know, I knew about a bunch of things that nobody cared about or nobody knew about didn't want to talk about. Right. Now, you don't have that problem. Mm-hmm. Like, kids, kids are going to fucking know and research everything. Like, you know... There's no shortage of knowledge or referential information for you to learn about any topic or any person or any style of music that you want. You know, someone could mention something to you one day and you could come into school the next day a fucking expert on it. Mm -hmm. Strange. It's a strange thing to think about how it's going to affect. And how it's all sorted. It's all sorted for you. Like, you don't have to follow Pink Floyd over a decade of their career. You can consume everything that pink floyd ever did every mm-hmm. interview every little bit of artwork yeah in a month yeah. and then you're done with it and you put it away and you yeah. move on and it's it's a really good way to live you can't be surprised because there's not going to be someone who's like oh have you heard this super secret pink floyd record that like only a few people in north america have heard 
that doesn't exist anymore because everyone will be able to hear it because it's just on yeah. the internet, right? Like, there's no secrets. It's a funny thing, like, when a when a 22-year-old Pink Floyd fan runs into a 50-year-old Pink Floyd and fan. Knows way because he knows way more about the band. He can download everything. And yeah. the old man is just like, oh, I don't know. How, how did you get that rare back issue? Yeah. And that, that sort of, um, that pretentious secrecy that people have always loved to have, like, when you know more about one thing than anybody else or you know about like these albums that a lot of like you know oh this deer hoof album that's like super obscure and like you know it's like not not a lot of people like it but i fucking love it having those like secret treasures yeah that you know you kind of love to keep from everybody that's not going to exist either right like there's no secrets there's no way to keep that kind of thing to yourself everyone is just going to have access to everything and there's not going to be many dividers between groups of people right like as far as like overlapping interests is that gonna is that gonna improve life for teenagers is it gonna make teenagers well, easier I think it's just different right like i think what it it opens up is the possibility for individual units of culture to yeah. become part of the language so instead of trying to sum up with um you know flapping your your meat lips at one another how you feel about something yeah you express yourself with a mixtape yeah or you express yourself with a supercut of these different little bits of um media i mean they talk about you hear a lot of criticism from um our parents and grandparents about the descent the lowering of literacy yeah. among young people and i feel like you would only interpret it as a lowering of literacy if you're only focusing on the actual words that the people are using yeah. and the typewritten forms of communication that are coming out. Yeah. I feel like it. you need to include the ability to edit video as a form of literacy, right. the ability to take photographs as a form of literacy, yeah. because they're all communications tool that young people are becoming very, very savvy with yeah. at a younger and younger age. And it's the first time that's ever happened. Yeah. Well, maybe not the first time in history where, like, you know, the the very youngest generation has had, like, a leg up. But certainly not. We are going to be and the it, first generation of young people where everyone owns a camera. That's never happened before. Yeah, I know. Yeah. An entire continent of people. And especially the, the idea of having them everywhere and having these phones. We're going to be the first generation where we see someone who has more or less... Um, documented their entire life. Mm -hmm. They have pictures from like almost every day of their life. And by life. the way, it's in HD. It's in full color. These are vivid. It's not a, a, a crumpled up picture in an mm -hmm. old shoebox. This is like as good as your eyesight. Mm -hmm. with, and you're able to, like with videos too, you're going to see kids who could lay their life out in a timeline, like a Facebook style timeline to, from when they were born all the daily pictures and videos their parents took to when they got their first camera and started taking pictures all throughout their adulthood until they had like they're going to be people out there with like a hundred thousand pictures or more yeah. of just like their daily lives of their friends of places they've been of things they've done of stupid things they've seen yeah. on the street it's you can almost imagine you can almost argue that the natural human mind is has like varying degrees of amnesia it's not just old people who have dementia yeah. that have fragmented memories it's all of us yeah and the crazy surreal thing that's going on right now is that with the right type of obsessiveness 
you could document everything yep. and have a form of memory that is much more um it's referential referential yeah like kind of compiled Mm -hmm. because one of the one of the fun things that your brain does and they've done all sorts of tests on this where they basically like they'd feed five stories to somebody about their childhood four would be real that they'd sourced from their parents and one would be be a generic fun memory and most people were completely unable to identify which one if any was Mm -hmm. fake and so your brain is filling in the gaps, you know, like you're when you can't remember exa- the exact details, then your brain fills it in with its most creative or most like sort of sensible version of events. It's painterly that way. Yeah, that's that's how you mm-hmm. start to interpret that memory. You your cha- your memory is changing the way that you're perceiving how things happen to you changes in a lifetime. So that like things I remember about my teen years now, by the time I'm 50, their elements are going to have changed and I won't even realize it. Right. I won't even be able to remember what was different about the story unless I document every fucking day of my life like people are able to do now very like easily. I wonder which one is more true Um, because there is something about the digital that can be deceptive as well. Like where you saw an image from Party, for instance. Yeah. And you you know what the experience of being in that place was. You remember it was a really special night yeah. for whatever reason. Or you knew that there was some sort of conflict that was going on. Yeah. But because everyone is like smiling in the photo, people who don't know the backstory wouldn't be able to guess that. Right. So you got to wonder, like, is the digital the more accurate way of, of doing it? Or is your brain... Um, got more the the right idea where it kind of glosses over and it, and it's hazy. The edges are hazy. Like things aren't cut and dry. Like there's different interpretations of experience and stuff. Right, which is where which is where the rest of social media comes in, right? Because not only are you taking pictures and videos, you're commenting on them, you're writing things, you're writing a description of the video, you're kind of you're kind of jotting down the footnotes of this like situation, and they've even something like Instagram tries to compensate for the fact that people have don't all have the same eyes and also are not always in a completely sober, uninebriated state, right? So now not only can you like take a picture, but you can add a filter to it or add like a point of focus that is a closer representation of how, how you, you feel. feel and we're mm-hmm. actually seeing it, right? Yeah. It gives a, a mood to the what you're taking a picture of rather than it just being a very straight, stark, exacting colored picture of like what was going on, right? It, we've we've already started to change the way photography works and add things to it in order to compensate for the fact that like you know it it might lose some of the emotion it might lose some of the um, the way you were seeing it it might not be exactly accurate to how your brain was interpreting that moment. I love it when um, you run into somebody and they tell you about the death of journalism and how without these vetted journalists, we're never going to know what's really going on in the world and how Twitter is an abomination. And I go, have you ever been interviewed by somebody and seen your own words like paraphrased back to you and then seen like um, an interviewer interpret the interview and interpret you and your thoughts in their own words? Yeah. It's maddeningly awful. Yeah. Like you can't believe how... Easily somebody can take stuff out of context. Yeah. How easily some people can twist your words into something completely different than your intent. Yeah. And j- it's just 
you and me sitting down and directly talking to one another. Yeah. You can imagine how amplified that effect is when you've got something like a president who's deliberately putting forth propaganda that's not true to begin with. Yeah. Or um, an artist that somebody's interpreting from secondary uh, signals, right? They're just looking at their paintings and trying to figure out what's going on in their head. Yeah. I feel like nowadays, at least with the ability for everybody to contribute to the conversation, yeah, you end up you can at least get a little bit of um, fact checking from the direct source. Yeah. So there's it, like on a very broad level, like there's been parties that I've gone to yeah. where the next day somebody will say to me, "Boy, you were drunk last night," and I hadn't been drinking at all, like not even one beer i was just having a lot of fun yeah. you know we were just mosh in the mosh pit and we were just jumping around and stuff having a good time yeah you know um a person's point of view can can be completely off can, yeah can, can ruin the like facts right like it can cloud the facts and i think that's like you know a part of why journalism is sort of shitty Mm. Like, I don't know why journalists are sort of shitty because it's their job to sensationalize any content. Oh, that's, right? like, yeah, that's something I didn't even think of. A straight, a straight interview is not interesting, right? Like, they want to be able to extrapolate what's, like, good or bad about your character. They want to portray it in almost, like, this wrestling way where it's just, like, they're painting you based on, like, this one point of view you have, this one characteristic, and they're running everything through their own confirmation bias in order to support that story, mm-hmm. and they're leaving out anything that doesn't. Yeah. Like any 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 sentence that would ar- would be the other would argue the opposite would say that you know you don't think like that they get rid of that they trim it in the interest of like journalistic sensationalization. It could also the other way you could you could think about it too is that it's a byproduct of industrialism. Yeah, there was this great interview with David Sedaris that I was watching where he was talking about how interesting it is to be kind of like a sealess celebrity. And to still have moments where you end up in awkward conversations where, you know, people will walk up to you in New York City and they'll expect you to be wacky because that's the kind of stuff you write and you must be a wacky guy all the time. Yeah. And they they don't understand the nuance of like, just like everybody else in the world, some days you're in a bad mood, some days you're feeling dark, some days you're just introspective, yeah. other days you are um, fun. And um, he said both him and his sister, Amy Sedaris, get the, the same thing where people have a, a preconception that they're going to be like they're writing all the time. Yeah. Well, that, that's like a that's a serious problem mm-hmm. with with entertainment is that people there are people out there who are are not able to find the line between someone's character and someone's real life. We're like people would go up to Kelsey Grammer on the street and expect him to be like the stuffy Frasier character. It's like not not who he is. He's an actor. He's <laughs> he's acting like Frasier. He's Kelsey Grammer. <laughs> you don't know what he's like because unless you've watched a whole bunch of like Kelsey Grammer stuff, like it's an unknown person. You're not talking to yeah. Frasier, so don't approach oh, him. Oh, and I didn't like you I are. didn't hit upon uh, the point I was trying to make is that um, the reason I think it's 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 industrial thinking is that um, the industrial revolution encouraged everybody to think in terms of specialization Mm -hmm. and to think of in terms of widgets and what that ends up doing is like in order to have a strong brand david sedaris needs to be known as the witty 
nibbish New Yorker type of guy. And Kelsey Grammer needs to be known as the intellectual faux um, psychiatrist from TV. Yeah. Yada, yada, yada. These are brands that are put forward. And it's so embedded in the way we think now that people have a hard time breaking out of it and go yeah. and thinking of any of somebody being any other way than they are. Yeah. And it, I mean, you, it even happens among friends, right? Like you'll find, uh, I think if, I think everybody has like a certain level of like fair weather friends yeah. where you guys, you're close, you get along and stuff, but you know, those aren't the people that you're going to be able to mistreat if you're having a really bad day or yeah. the people who are going to take you to the hospital if you need it, you know, yeah. these kinds of, of, of arcs that happen in everybody's life. Yeah. yeah, it's true. It's very, it's like a very strange thing that we need to learn to separate the the character from the person. Like you just, it, it's vital that we not become confused about who we're really talking to, right? Mm-hmm. At, or have any kind of misconception about how a person is based on their movie roles or their music or whatever. Because it always, it always like people get so precious about it and they get so obsessed with it of like, oh, you know, so and so is my favorite musician. Blah blah blah. And then they hear an interview with him where the guy's a dick, and they're like, "Oh, I can't believe it! I can't believe he's such a fucking asshole." It's like, well, fucking believe it. He is. Like, <laughs> you you have to get over that, and either either you let that affect the fact that you like that person's music or mm. movies, or you separate those things. You're not that person's friend. You don't have to deal with that person on a day to day basis, and they're personal or political views or the way that they treat people should be separate yeah. from the way that they play music or how they act. You should be able to appreciate those things for the s- separate things that they are. And, and you it- should also keep in mind that um, interviews are very unnatural things. And like what you might be seeing is a very honest reaction to the fact that people find it strange. It's weird that this this person has come with a microphone and a camera and has started asking all sorts of pretentious questions to this person. Yeah. And they might be acting defensive and things because it's an unnatural situation. Yeah. It's not natural. You watch any kind of interview with, with someone who kind of just doesn't have time for that bullshit, but no, they need to be doing interviews, right? Like even that thing that happened with Mike Tyson recently on uh, CB 24 and like, you know, he goes into an interview with a guy, he's completely not expecting this morning Canadian TV fucking anchor to bring up his rape conviction super casually. He's there to promote a show. He's there to like talk about Rob Ford. Yeah. And this guy blindsides him and goes, oh, like, don't you think this is your rape conviction? Like, people are talking about your rape conviction. And everyone's surprised that Mike, uh, Mike Tyson's like, you're an asshole. What the fuck's wrong with you? And I don't think it's so much that he brought up rape conviction. I think that there's a way to broach a subject in a polite way. Yeah, and he didn't do it. But the way he did it, the tone of it was exactly what you're saying. It's It's accusatory. It's it's, uh, intentionally provocative. And the thing about intentional provocative stuff is that if you're a former heavyweight champion, you know, uh, it's kind of like somebody setting you up and you're... Even if, like, you're not, you would be willing to talk about that subject, which he does in his his show. Yeah. The fact that somebody has decided to poke you and they're coming at you with an attack. Yeah. Like, he could have, he could have insulted him in a similar way. It was, it was the tone and, like, the timing of yeah. it that the, was strange. The, it's the, like, why are you trying to provoke me on? The succession of, ju- of 
questions Mm -hmm. and the way that the interview was sort of laid out was very obviously like i'm gonna put mike in the hot seat about like his rape convictions and about him like backing this crazy mayor obviously a guy who probably doesn't like rob ford very much probably doesn't like the idea i don't even know celebrity is giving rob ford the time of day and like endorsing him right so he's set out to demoralize anyone who's like getting a kick out of this and also to devalue Mike Tyson's opinion in any way that he possibly can. And did the journalist consider that it was probably a very um, calculated media manipulation? They knew that they wanted to come to Toronto and advertise Mike Tyson's live show. How are we going to get press? Wouldn't it be funny if he goes and meets Rob Ford and pats him on the back? It's the first thing we thought of. Rob Ford has been in the news and we associate it with Toronto. Yeah. You know, it was probably as simple as that. And it's so funny to watch like the balls on some interviewers like that guy, because if you look at Tyson's history with reporters and with like public appearances, he's got a bad track record of losing his temper. He's an angry guy. He's full of a lot of anger. And if you stir that up in him, Mm. he, he, his anger gets in front of him and he starts speaking without thinking. And I mean, you, you think about the background of the journalist, right? Like, I don't know anything about the guy, but he's, um, he's wearing a bow tie on the morning news and stuff. Um, he might be coming from a, a worldview where he's extremely embarrassed by both Rob Ford and Mike Tyson. Yeah. And he's uh, in a position where he's like, well, I'm going to embarrass this guy on yeah, TV. Exactly. I don't want to help advertise and make this guy money because I think he's a rapist piece of shit. Yeah. But I feel like, you know, why, uh, why are you inviting him on in the morning on your television show that has advertisers and trying to make money off the guy? Yeah. You know, it's it's kind of weird that he's using he's exploiting Mike Tyson as much as Mike Tyson is exploiting right, yeah. the show. Yeah, and then you turn it into this confrontation, which you also hope will get on YouTube. Very lucky, very yeah. lucky that I mean, if uh, Tyson's handler hadn't have been there, that guy who was just like, "Okay, let's get this conversation back on the show." Yeah, I think fucking Tyson legitimately have could him. have just fucking knocked him out on yeah, live TV. I, I and what a, what a story it. that would have been, right? Mike Tyson comes to Toronto and just fucking pops a CP24. Yeah, but does he face. want an assault charge and stuff? I mean, no, I'm sure Mike Tyson not. runs into people every day that yell stuff at him and he who, do who want to take down the champ. <laughs> That's, I guarantee, I always think about that. I'm always like, oh, boxers, like old boxers, in their uh, when they're past their prime and they reintegrate into society and they just go about their business doing regular things their life isn't about boxing anymore how many times a fucking drunk asshole would come up to you and be like you think you're fucking still tough buddy to try and take down the champ wow. like someone yeah someone that has to be a problem mm-hmm. i would think that has to be such a huge Joe Rogan was saying that that happens to Chuck Liddell. They run up to him in the street. And yeah, like, let's fight. Try let's, to fight him. Yeah, like, <laughs> think, thinking they're the tougher guy. And, like, you know, in some cases, maybe they are. Mike Tyson's an older guy now. He's not. He was, uh, he was a prize fighter in the 80s. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not a prize fighter. He lost his last fight really, really embarrassingly. He got his ass kicked. But versus a regular person off the street, he could probably handle yeah, himself. Yeah, he could probably handle himself. I think it, the thing it reminds me of is... Uh, is you know, somebody like um, Dave Chappelle complaining that people are constantly running up to him and telling him to do Rick James impressions and yeah. stuff, right? It's It's got to be obnoxious for anybody known for anything to be put in a situation where they feel like a dancing monkey. And they, yeah, they try and reintegrate. <laughs> they don't, you know, ha- fucking a great example, a sad Sorry. example would be like, um, 
you know, Gary Coleman. Gary Coleman spent the rest of his life trying to get away with what you talking about. Just mm-hmm. trying to get people to stop saying that to him until he just had to And what a curse it. that he was that he has that uh, I don't know affliction that that type of body that he's he hasn't grown he's still small yep. right it's, he still looks like Arnold from different strokes he wasn't able to mutate like some of the Jackson Five have and to just turn into like a regular black a reg- guy a know? regular person yeah and like I saw something recently it was the the star of that movie Matilda mm-hmm. remember that little girl who's like you know Matilda no shit Matilda's still around she she's like what'd she turn into she's a completely normal well-adjusted person in like a way that's almost unheard of with child stars because she was able to separate herself from that role and as she grew she became less recognizable like she changed enough that like if someone said oh that's the girl from Matilda you'd be like oh yeah it is but if you just look at a picture of her completely featureless Mm -hmm. like in terms of recognition and that is a blessing for someone who ha- was a child star, maybe not uh, on their own accord. Right. A lot of child stars, you know, they're they get a, they're nudge. They're, they're getting a yeah. nudge from the parents because it's like you know, it's a job. It's mm-hmm. fucking like child labor. You know, like they're forcing these kids to basically be the stars of syndicated TV shows. Mm-hmm. That's a full time fucking job when you're supposed to be enjoying your childhood. So to have any sort of growth where you can get rid of those identifiers and just be part of the crowd must be such a relief for those people and such a burden for someone like Gary Coleman or uh, Emmanuel Lewis or, um, you know, just even people like Corey Feldman. You know, he fucking looked the same as he did. He he was recognizable as that guy. Right. It's a curse. It fucking sucks. If you're not an actor anymore, but you're still recognized for this part of your life, that's over. I feel like there needs to be a lot of adjustments to compensate for the fact that we are living in the Andy Warhol future where everybody's going to be famous for 15 minutes. Yeah. We have to figure out some elegant way that people can readjust and melt back into the ether after they've had something that distinguished themselves because fuck that's got to be tough on people if you're a guy who you know imagine side never has another hit song and it's just like another 20 years of like kind of dwindling attention yeah after this giant success right what's that going to be like Exactly. That's going to be because I don't know if we're if we're still going to be in um, if there's still going to be a market for Journey to come to the Molson Amphitheater or like the Canadian National Exhibition and do their three hits. Yeah. You know, Um, and then, you know, like the the thing you think about, you know, once that part of your life's over, it's a bitter, bitter, sweet thing where you're like you had that thing and now it's gone and like you're able to look back on it. But it is sort of like you wish you could still have it. And then someone comes up to Psy 20 years later when he's not a star and goes, oh, Gangnam Style to him. And it's just like, it's, it's bitter. <laughs> Mike Tyson's it's bitter. And so the the thing I was thinking, just kind of thinking about it, though, almost the, the best way for you to handle that, handle slipping out of celebrity and having that trademark is to go. Fake is, your death. No, fake your death is one way. <laughs> That's to get out of it completely. But in. The elegant solution, as far as I can tell, is to um, embrace 
that singular aspect of your character in a way that like someone like George Takei did where like he's yeah he seems very happy George George Takei's been doing the oh my (laughs) thing forever and it's just like he is he is on the surface like almost like this one-dimensional personality that could have easily become one of those people that really like you know didn't want to talk about star star trek and like you know that part of his life was over he's not an actor anymore blah 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 blah. Mm. and people would have come up to him on the street and been like oh it's sulu it's sulu oh my and he could have been all pissed off about it but instead he, he goes for it he embraces the fact that that's a quirky aspect that people fixate on and he uses it to stay relevant and as soon as you're not insecure about it it seems like you understand that it's a it's a very small amount of your attention that people yeah. are actually looking for. Yeah. You know, it, did it inconvenience you that you had to say, oh my, and nope. you took a selfie with the person? You nope. made somebody happy that day? Yeah. I also wonder, considering his background, I wonder how much that influences him. Like, knowing that he's got relatives that were incinerated by nuclear bombs. Yeah, and, like and he's he, was, got he was kept relatives in an internment, camp. internment camps and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, for sure. And like you can see you can see how the opposite works against people. Like if someone from the same show, fucking Shatner, after like Star <laughs> Trek was over, he went he went through a frustrated period where he was trying to reinvent himself. He was trying to do the serious spoken word thing and like he was kind of shrugging off all these Kirk jokes and being typecast as Captain Kirk and didn't want to have anything to do with it and it made him a hack to people. People were like, oh, you're a has-been, you're a hack, you're trying to reinvent yourself, you're not like giving enough credit to the thing that made you famous. So now later in life, he's embraced it and it's made him a likable character Because again. you know what, to be honest, like the a lot of these, these people who take themselves way too seriously, they need to go hang out with Daniel Day-Lewis or somebody who is an actually good actor yeah someone get, who becomes the recalibrate character. their their worldview yeah because i think the people who are embracing comic-con they're recognizing that like the only reason that they had success was the fans yeah it wasn't your efforts that made that show great it hit some sort of cultural vibe that wasn't being mined and you know it's it's like uh, Star Trek, the original series, wasn't the greatest piece of sci-fi fiction ever put together. No. But it was the only one available. Yeah. So if it's the only one, you're going to get fans. And it broke a lot of boundaries, which, like, you know, you can either accept that uh, the, the boundaries that you broke were part part of the reason you were so popular. Like, you know, you do controversial things like have the first black-white kiss on TV, and that is something that will be remembered and is talked about and you can either be really bitter about like that your acting is getting sidled in comparison to like you know this one scene that you did where you didn't even speak you just kissed each other and that's so controversial that that like sparked interest in the show and like you know uh, George Takei constantly makes like reference to the fact he's like oh the first show to put an Asian driver <laughs> like you know just to break the stereotype of bad Asian drivers and like he you could be bitter about that or you could fucking embrace it and that is the way to gracefully leave stardom but not really to be a part of the celebrity the celebrosphere but not be uh, not have to be bitter about it not yeah. ha- have a negative spin on it you can just stay positive about it mm-hmm. and you know it for child stars, it's probably a little harder because they... You used to they, be so cute. Yeah, and they, they lost 
they lost their cuteness. They lost their edge once they became adults. And like some of them went on to be successful adults, but a lot of them were just immediately. And I can't, I can't imagine that being an, a child actor is a fun thing. You know, like making movies is tough work. Yeah. Imagine not having the ability to just relax and hang out with your friends. And exactly, and being treated like a being treated like an adult, or like and by your your fellow kids too. Like you're at school, suddenly you can't just blend in. You're that kid that's an actor. Yeah, and like you look at all the other kids from Different Strokes, mm-hmm. like the the blonde girl who played Kimberly on Different Strokes died young. She was in porn after she did Different Strokes, and she was like a drug addict and then, and died, and um. Willis went through some like difficult times where he was like, you know, into some criminal activity and was like, you know, ju- also into drugs. And Gary Coleman ended up working as a security guard. And that old man his- that was raising those kids did a shitty job. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. <laughs> Mr. Drummond fucking dropped the ball. <laughs> hey, Mr. Drummond. Shut up, kids. Well, well, hey there, Arnold. He's like Bing Crosby. As soon as the cameras stop rolling, he's smacking him around. Ah, shut the fuck up. <laughs> Where's my whiskey? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> dark. Anyways, we should wrap it up there. Yep. I got to go to bed. Well, this is a good reunion. See y'all next week. What up, what up? Chugga, chugga, chugga. So you're going to come back? Yeah, I'm you're gonna back. going to make it more. I, I just had a couple, you know, I, I, I've had a hard couple weeks. I've been electrocuted. Yeah, you got electrocuted. How did that happen? Uh, it was almost like a cartoonish series of events where something defrosted and a bunch of water leaked off the side of a metal prep table and onto a power bar, which then (laughs) moved over and touched the metal table, which electrified the entire metal table, which I put my hand down onto and dropped like a fucking sack of potatoes. You got shocked that bad. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I got woozy and like got an immediate headache and like burned my, hand oh, like it actually burned, burned my skin holy fuck and I, yeah i've just been working a lot and sort of not having the the energy or the um anything interesting to talk about other than work I've been well feeling... i think that you should be compensated a little bit for being electrocuted yeah, at work red and black yeah whatever it's not gonna happen live and learn kind of i guess <laughs> it's not really my fault but uh but now i have an even more um, serious respect for electricity. I already did respect electricity, but now, <laughs> now I find myself kind of like checking outlets and like looking down at things I'm about to use. I desperately like, want to do an Ontario work safety video with you talking about your respect for electricity. <laughs> you have to respect electricity because that shit fucking hurts. It's useful, but it'll fucking kill you. It'll fuck you up. <laughs> All right, this episode of Dear Grave was brought to you by Concord Grapes, bananas. Shitty Starbucks cold coffee in a can. And the song, I don't know, Danger, Danger, High Voltage. Yeah. No, let's <laughs> let's just cut to some mystical. Danger! Get out on the floor! Right here! Sing it! I came here with my dick in my hand. Don't make me leave here with my foot in your ass. Be cool. Some sort of short circuit. I don't know. Line from short circuit. The end. You ever seen Short Circuit 2, just as a side sidebar? Oh, of course. Los Locos. Los Locos. Los Locos, kick your ass. Los Locos, kick your face. Los Locos, kick your balls into outer space. <laughs> Robbie dressed up, Rob dressed up like a gangster. Awesome. Gold Johnny Five at the end. Fucking awesome. Very tra- the transformative, triumphant yeah. hero arc in that movie. All right. Go bye, everybody. It. Bye. bye.
two hours and five minutes.